You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. government issues a major advisory warning of North Korean offenses in cyberspace. Ericsson will provide BT the equipment to replace Huawei gear in its networks. Notes on COVID-19-themed cybercrime. Some temporary telework may become permanent. Disinformation from Tehran, domestic fish bait from Damascus. And to Zoom or not to Zoom. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 16th, 2020. In what the New York Times sees as a sign that deterrence of North Korea in cyberspace is beginning to fail, the U.S. government has issued an unusually comprehensive advisory about Pyongyang's cyberspace offensive. The joint advisory, to which the Departments of State, the Treasury, and Homeland Security and the Federal Bureau of Investigation contributed, and which they approved, concentrates on the threat North Korean hacking poses to the international financial system. The DPRK's activities are grouped under three main heads. First, cyber-enabled financial theft and money laundering. A great deal of this activity involves stealing altcoin, cryptocurrency. Second, extortion campaigns, that is, ransomware. One unusual form of extortion is the DPRK's use of long-term paid consulting arrangements to ensure that no such further malicious cyber activity takes place. That is, they run cyber protection rackets. Nice data you got there. Shame if something happened to it. And last, cryptojacking, which still affords some prospect of a modest return, and Pyongyang needs all the financial help it can get. The unusually long public advisory includes advice on how to defend oneself against North Korean attacks, The U.S. government is also offering rewards of up to $5 million for tips about illicit DPRK cyber activities, which you can submit to the State Department's Rewards for Justice website. To the New York Times observation that deterrence may be failing, in all fairness, it should be noted that cyber deterrence of Pyongyang has been for decades at best a work in progress. Deterrence is always at some level a counter-value proposition, and the less of value you've got to lose, the harder you may be to deter. Ericsson has won the contract to provide BT with the equipment it will need to replace Huawei gear in the big British telco's networks, SDX Central reports. The BBC says BT complains it will take until 2023 to purge Huawei kit. This suggests that the British decision to ban Huawei from its core networks, widely seen as wishy-washy appeasement at the time, may be biting harder than it was generally expected to do. There will be costs for Huawei's partners as well as Huawei. CPO Magazine notes that the U.S. FBI has stepped up its efforts to notify the public of criminal attempts to take advantage of the coronavirus emergency. The Bureau has increased the frequency of its alerts. It only issued nine during all of last year. It's already issued four during March and April. 
Not all of these deal directly with COVID-19, but it does seem that the tempo of cybercrime engendered by the pandemic has moved the FBI in the direction of more frequent public engagement than had been the norm. One of the things organizations are learning is what sort of work can be done remotely. It's likely that some of the habits being built up now will persist beyond the current emergency. FCW, for one, thinks that a great deal of the surge in telework the U.S. Department of Defense is seeing may well turn into a permanent way of doing business. Chinese operators have been the most active purveyors of disinformation during the COVID-19 emergency, but other actors haven't been idle either. Graphica reports that an Iranian threat group, the International Union of Virtual Media, IUVM, a front operation, has been active in pushing the line that the coronavirus had its origins in a U.S. biowar program. Quote, The IUVM operation is significant and mannered by a well-resourced and persistent actor, but its effectiveness should not be overstated, end quote. Their reach has been limited, attracting only about 3,000 followers, The Verge notes. But persistent they have been. The group's accounts have been the repeated targets of takedowns by Facebook, Google, and Twitter, but they continue to reappear. Their line is generally pro-Iranian and pro-Palestinian, anti-U.S., anti-Israel, anti-Turkey, and anti-Saudi. Like much Chinese disinformation, and unlike much Russian disinformation, the Iranian efforts aim at persuading the audience to specific set of views, and not merely at disruption. On the principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the IUVM has been heavily engaged in repeating stories that tend to Beijing's advantage. They generally praise China's response to the epidemic, dismiss criticism of Beijing as psychological warfare, commend China's contributions to international emergency relief, and even praise China's business acumen in using the crisis as an opportunity to buy low and sell high. For many, part of the new normal in shoring up your work-from-home cyber defenses involves running a VPN. But not all VPNs are created equal, and they vary in both security and ease of use. For more on that, we checked in with Attila Securities' Greg Smith. Well, I think today, Dave, what you're seeing is a significant amount of people who have been bound to their office desk are all being asked to move home. Very often, the enterprise or the government agency that they work for does not have uh, the capabilities of providing all these employees that are forced to work at home with government-issued or enterprise-issued computers. So one of the challenges that's facing the CIO today is the fact that uh, these employees are using their home computers to connect back into the network. And of course, that presents an awful lot of challenges, especially as it relates to the secure communications from their home back into the enterprise itself. Well, let's go over, I mean, just some of the basics here. What are the issues there? What's the stuff that... uh that we should be worried about that could be being sent in the clear? Well, certainly uh, any government agency or enterprise employee is working with sensitive information. In the case of the enterprise, it could be just enterprise data, but it also could be the intellectual property of that particular entity itself. There was a resort here locally in Maryland that sent their workers home last week. And uh, lo and behold, uh, someone did not have a VPN. They were using their home computer. Their home computer was attacked. The attacker moved laterally into the 
a payment system of this particular resort. And the resort the next day realized that they had lost $23,000. So as a starting point, communicating in the clear from a home computer can create a lot of problems uh, just from the use of unsecured Wi-Fi, not having a VPN, a potential eavesdropping event, a man-in-the-middle attack, uh, and again, the advent of insecure Wi-Fi being the most prominent situation that's out there today. Well, can, can you walk me through it sort of uh, one level at a time? I mean, starting from the, the least secure to the most secure, the, the various options and things that people can put in place? Certainly. I think that uh, at a minimum, having a VPN is a really good starting point. Typically, what you'll find is that on government or enterprise-issued computers, they already have a VPN installed. But in many cases, especially with the user using his personal computer, that VPN is not compliant with the enterprise VPN. And, uh, you know, that, that is sort of the, the basic issue that's out there today. And if an employee happens to go to a Starbucks or another area where there is free Wi-Fi, you know, very often the captive portal that allows you to connect into the Internet from that Starbucks or from that location has malicious Java uh, script in there. And as soon as you click accept on the terms and conditions page, very often that malicious JavaScript gets uh, downloaded onto your computer and our, you know, the adversary owns your computer at that point. That's Greg Smith from Attila Security. Researchers at Lookout have seen a change in approach on the part of a group that appears to be operated by the Syrian government's domestic security apparatus. It's been active since 2018, at least, and recently it's been prospecting Syrians with COVID-19 fishbait to induce them to install SpyNote, SandroRat, EndoServer, or SLRat surveillance tools. Some of the bait takes the form of bogus apps— One is a bogus digital thermometer because what better to have on a worried person's phone than a thermometer that can warn them of the onset of a fever. More large companies have banned the use of Zoom. TechRadar reports that Siemens has joined Standard Chartered Bank in telling its employees to avoid using the teleconferencing service. Zoom hasn't been idle. In its latest move to shore up security, the company has brought in Luda Security to run a revamped bug bounty program, ZDNet observes that Luda's Katie Masouris has tweeted a greeting to others she indicates are joining Zoom's advisory team. In addition to Alex Stamos, whose appointment has been known for several days, she indicated in a tweet that she'd be joined by, as ZDNet lists them, privacy expert Leah Kistner, former global lead of privacy technology at Google, cryptographer and Johns Hopkins professor Matthew Green, and three well-known security auditing firms, Bishop Fox, the NCC Group, and Trail of Bits. So should organizations use Zoom or not? Forbes offers sensible advice. If data privacy and security are paramount, then no. If, however, affordability and ease of use are more important than locking down your data, then Zoom isn't a bad choice. So if your office is holding a virtual happy hour, go ahead and Zoom happily. If you need to discuss PII, trade secrets, or, heaven forfend, classified information, then seek thou else whither. And if it's classified stuff you're talking, take it to a skiff, friends.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, you recently keynoted at the 2020 RSA conference. Uh, I was hoping you could uh, give us a little summary. What were some of the topics that you touched on there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks. It was, uh, it was a big shock, by the way, even getting that. <laughs> it was just really exciting. And it wasn't because I thought I was so good. Contrary to that, actually, it was because I thought that the community had really rallied around that. And the reason it felt so great is because people showed up. There was tons of people online. And there was tons of people in the room. I think five or 600 people that were there um, in the auditorium and just caring about industrial infrastructure. And I just thought that was such a wonderful moment in our community. Um, the keynote focused on the Dragos year in review reports we published. So those year in review reports have insights into the threats, our lessons from the field, and also insights into vulnerabilities. Um, what we have found a couple of years ago is that nobody was publishing kind of as vendor neutral as possible kind of reports about sort of the status of the industry and what's going on and setting some kind of trend lines to be able to follow over the years. So this keynote really had a couple uh, a couple points from there, but I in many ways also treated it as this welcome to the ICS community. Here's how we play and work together, and this is what you need to be aware of kind of wide audience presentation. And the the points really were one. Um, industrial is different. Please stop trying to call it IoT. I see a lot of mm. uh, big firms and marketing firms and markets and et cetera get confused on this ICS stuff or, or operations technology or OT stuff. So they just try to flavor it as well. It's those it's the IoT. It's it's internet connected stuff. 
except for our systems have been around longer than your internet. So let's focus <laughs> on the fact that it's ICS or OT. Um, so number one, we're different, and please don't call it IoT. Uh, number two, the reason we're different is not just because we have different systems. Um, we have Windows systems too. It's the fact that we have different threats, different missions, different risks. Everything about what we're trying to accomplish in the environment to which we're accomplishing it is different, um, which also means there's that interaction with physics. And so we have to take different approaches to security. A lot of the things that you would think would work in an IT environment, you know, deploying antivirus or endpoint protection systems, relying heavily on uh, vulnerability management programs, uh, in- encryption, et cetera. Like a lot of the things that you would want in an IT environment, you don't actually even want um, in the ICS. And I'm not saying don't patch or don't do antivirus, but the, the limits of those controls are significant when you look at what you're actually trying to reduce risk against. And then the third thing is I just kind of gave an overview of where we are with threats, vulnerabilities, and kind of lessons from the field. From the threats perspective, um, there are 11 different teams targeting industrial control systems specifically now, with two that have shown the ability to to do destructive and disruptive attacks. Um, That is a huge uh, increase from where we were just a couple years ago. But where I kind of gave the community a note of optimism was, look, this is also because we're starting to look so it's not like things have just gotten worse than ever and, oh my gosh, we're screwed. It's more the fact that our community is becoming mature, doing things like asset identification and visibility and, and network monitoring in these environments. We're, we're seeing more things. Um, in the same way, I talked about the vulnerabilities, which actually a significant portion of the vulnerabilities in ICS are useless, and we shouldn't overfocus on them, but there are some that are important, and let's figure out how to evaluate these correctly so we're not going to operations and saying, you should patch all these vulnerabilities, but instead going to them and saying, look, there's like 450 that came out this year, and we only really care about like these five. Let's go take advantage of these five together. Um, and, mm. and there's more of a sense of partnership. And then the, the last thing was just around like instant response lessons learned. So even though we're a technology company, we, we still do a lot of instant response and get a lot of good insights from, from that and our services work. And in a couple of the metrics that kind of stood out was one, um, 100% of people that thought they had an air gap had multiple routes of connectivity uh, into their industrial environments. Uh, we found that 51% of our incident response engagements, we were given information that was supposed to help us, like network diagrams are similar, and it was so out of date or so bad that it actually hurt us. And we, we were better off sort of throwing that information to the side. And then we found the fact that in the incident response engagements we went into, None of them were benefited at all from any level of like centralized logging or network visibility um, or any of the tooling required to be successful in those environments. So, mm-hmm. you know, as a call to action for the community, we really wanted to say, look, go think about what the response would look like and work backwards to build the detection strategy and the collection strategy that you want to be able to operate in that response scenario. Anyways, that was a lot, but that, that was a. Uh, a lot shorter than the keynote, so that's good too. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, it's a good summary, and I suppose uh, RSA has put these keynotes online. So if you want to check it out, you can do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, out there and viewed. I mean, as of right now, again, talk about an amazing community response. And yeah. It, it already has something like fifty thousand views on it as of as of today, and it's like that's crazy. I mean, think about people caring about our infrastructure and caring about the industrial community, and I just think we're we're in this real inflection point within our community where I think there's a lot there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of desire and goodwill to get it done. And I, I ultimately just think we're going to be successful. Yeah. 
All right. Well, congratulations, Rob, and uh, thanks for joining us. Robert M. Lee. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.